and welcome to Back Talk. This show is a conversation between two feminist people about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media. This week, I've been procrastinating by making a bunch of mixtapes. We publish mixtapes every Friday on our site, and they're kind of like what I do when I get sick of doing everything else. I just put together awesome mixtapes. I made a surf rock mixtape. Um, I'm working on a mixtape about breakup songs and like telling my new theme is like telling people no and that I'm quitting stuff so I'm making working on a quit it mixtape and I'm Amy Lamb the associate editor and uh, we just wrapped up production on the latest issue of bitch magazine blood and guts and um, I'm recuperating from that (laughs) (laughs) production cycle is always crazy and um, I guess like I'm just procrastinating period all right, so on Backtalk each week, we talk about two big issues from pop culture this week, and then one thing we heard, one thing we read, and one thing we saw this week. But we start off the show by talking about our favorite personal pop culture moment from the week. Amy, you want to share yours? Sure. Uh, so my pop culture moment is um, I read a piece in The New Yorker by a writer named Hua Su, and it was called The Melancholy Pop Idol Who Haunts China. And um, I was... I didn't really know what I was going to getting into when I read this piece. And then it like exploded and made my world like implode and explode and (laughs) (laughs) and do all these like amazing magical things. So it's a piece about um, remembering this uh, really famous pop star named Teresa Tang, uh, who's Taiwanese Chinese and um, how she has these like sappy pop love songs from the eighties and nineties that were like, that are ubiquitous in Chinese culture. And I didn't know her name or her songs until I reheard them because um, my dad had uh, had played her music like all the time when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I didn't like it or appreciate it or understand it because it's in Mandarin and at home we speak Cantonese. And um, and I just had one of those moments of like, wow, like I am having a third culture kid moment and where I am like, rediscovering this part of my childhood and this part of my parents culture that I that they couldn't communicate to me because of a culture gap and a language gap and it's just it felt so strange and like uh bizarre that I had to learn about this artist by reading a New Yorker article (laughs) uh and then to go look up her music on YouTube and then to like follow along. And then I, I instantaneously could hum the melody to these songs that I hadn't heard in like 10 years, which is insane. And then like through the magic of the internet, I was able to um, find the lyrics and then find the pinging, which is like a way to um, learn Chinese and then to see the English translation. And so like I could learn the lyrics to the songs and kind of sing them and like know what I was singing. It just was like a, a really bizarre pop culture slash like, child of a diaspora moment where I just like my brain imploded for a second like wow I'm discovering this not through like any sort of traditional channel but through like this really um white mainstream media uh the New Yorker for (laughs) for crying out loud so that was a it was a really neat thing for me to have discovered I guess yeah that's interesting where like you heard that music in your home like you didn't learn but you didn't learn about it from your dad you learned about it from the New Yorker. Yeah. From uh, I, I'm, I'm presuming he's Chinese-American. I'm a Chinese-American writer. Um, so that was super weird. And also, it's a really fun piece to read. So just check that out. I'll go look it up. Um, my favorite pop culture moment from the week was not nearly as personal or poignant as yours. Minus that, I saw aliens in theaters. 
<laughs> the sequel to, of course, the movie Alien, uh, starring Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, the uh, one of my favorite heroes ever. And I had never seen Aliens before. I love the movie Alien. I'm like a little bit obsessed with it. But I'd never seen Aliens because I'm really, really bad with scary movies. They it are scary. It takes me a long time to work up to seeing a movie that I know is going to be scary because I'm so bad with violence. I like freak out and like grab things and have to close my eyes for half of the time. So seeing Aliens in theaters was a big step for me. And that movie is so great. It's so great. And is now totally haunting my dreams because those aliens are terrifying. They are just as scary as I feared. <laughs> and those effects still like still live up. Oh, oh yeah. They are still scary. The movie was made uh, like 20 years ago now. And, um, they are still just as scary as they ever were. Don't watch Alien versus Predator if you're that scared. Yeah, I'm gonna. Cu- I also I'm gonna cut off now because people say the other ones aren't as good. <laughs> okay, let's go to our first topic of the week, which we're talking about Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is in the news this week. Um, a couple weeks ago, a right wing group unleashed a heavily edited video on the internet that alleged that Planned Parenthood was selling baby parts which just sounds like the most horrible thing you could think of. And this was a video that um, it turns out was uh, recorded about two years ago and was super heavily edited to create the perception that a Planned Parenthood representative who was talking to what she thought were sort of corporate people about uh, a practice called tissue donation, where if you get an abortion, you can donate the, the tissues of the fetus to medical research, like stem cell research. That... They tricked her into talking to them, filmed her without her consent, and then edited it to make it look like she was talking about selling baby parts. Uh, You wouldn't think this would get a lot of traction because it's clearly super absurd. Um, But as soon as the video was released, uh, it went viral. It's been seen by over 2 million people. And immediately, uh, some senators introduced a plan to defund Planned Parenthood because it's selling baby parts. And so this week... The plan was shot down, resoundingly outvoted in the Senate. That's great. Um, but it's hard to make sense of this stuff. So we thought that in order to help make sense of it, we'd call up a Planned Parenthood representative here in Oregon, Mary Nolan. Let's give her a call. Hi, Mary. Thanks for making time to talk to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Mary, I know you're the interim executive director of the Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. And I think my... My main question to you, I have two I have two big questions I want to run past you. And the first is that I feel kind of like ridiculous even having to write an article that says Planned Parenthood doesn't sell baby parts. And so I'm wondering if it's best to ignore them or uh, if ignoring them uh, is dangerous. I think ignoring direct attacks is dangerous and not just related to Planned Parenthood, but you're right in pointing out that extremists who want to limit women's healthcare choices, their reproductive choices, and their choice whether to have an abortion or not, are targeting Planned Parenthood as a way of targeting women's autonomy in their healthcare decisions. Planned Parenthood is a very visible, very effective, very compassionate healthcare provider for literally millions of patients around the country every year and about 80,000 patients in Oregon every year. Um, So I don't think you want to ignore a direct attack. 
I also think we have become perhaps a little too complacent or or maybe a little intimidated. And we haven't had conversations as comfortably about the realities of women's lives and that they need good information about sexuality. They need good information about how to um, time their pregnancy for the best time for them and about how to take care of their own sexual health. And particularly, we have um, collectively allowed ourselves to be intimidated and talk about abortion um, kind of in hushed tones instead of matter-of-factly. And that, I think, is what creates the situation that allows this reckless uh, sting operation to have some play in the public eye and in, you know it becomes intriguing because they've grabbed onto an, a hesitancy on the part of women to be matter of fact about their choices. Well, that's something that kind of that bothers me about this debate in general is that I feel like it's really like the right wing that gets to that has set the tone of the conversation and has set the frame for how we talk about it where you know instead of spending our time being really proactive about pushing forward reproductive rights instead reproductive rights advocates are having are having to fight just to stay where we are in in almost every state in the country having to just fight to like have what we already have. So I find so, that frust- it's just frustrating. I, I share your frustration. I, I think it is frustrating. And I think we are seeing some evidence that this most recent attack is actually backfiring on, um, on the intent of the perpetrators of it. They, a certain element of the population uh, will oppose women's health care choices, they'll oppose Planned Parenthood, they'll op- oppose the availability of abortion as a legal right. And the perpetrators of this sting operation are speaking to that group. But if they're trying to speak to the larger population, we're seeing that, in fact, it is, um, it's counterproductive. It is working against them. Um, you know, that that radical leftist publication, the Wall Street Journal, recently published a poll (laughs) saying that Planned Parenthood is regarded with a higher level of esteem and respect than both political parties, than the NRA even, than um, all the presidential candidates for 2016, than the Supreme Court. So if they're trying to undermine Planned Parenthood's credibility, I think, in fact, they're awakening people who have either been patients of Planned Parenthood, and we know that one in five women in the country um, for the last 30 years have been a, a beneficiary, a patient, a client of Planned Parenthood sometime in their lives, and there's no indication that that's slowing down. So I've got one I've got one last question for you, and this and it ties into that, which is uh, this week in the Senate, there was a plan introduced to defund Planned Parenthood, and it was uh, voted down. And I'm wondering, is there and actual... thank you to Oregon Senators <laughs> Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden for being outspoken 
in opposition to that. Thanks. Right. And there was, and it seemed like there wasn't a chance it was going to pass. And so I'm wondering, is Planned Parenthood actually in danger of being defunded or are bills like that that say we should yank funding from Planned Parenthood is that more political circus where you know a right-wing politician can say I introduced a bill to defund Planned Parenthood and the liberals in Congress voted it down or is it is it actually a viable threat that Planned Parenthood might be defunded we take nothing for granted we are grateful truly grateful for the support of all of the senators who saw through that that particular um, political uh, circus, um, and especially uh, leaders from Oregon, since that's where I represent, um, Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden, but all, and there were a couple of Republican senators who also voted against it. Um, and I don't think that particular bill had a chance of passing. The danger really comes if we, be, if we allow ourselves to become complacent. And that's why it's really gratifying for people um, to step forward and talk to their friends, their coworkers, the folks at the coffee shop, the folks at church, the folks at their gym about, hey, this is my experience. Uh, Planned Parenthood and other women's health care providers are compassionate, they're accessible, they're non-judgmental. That's the kind, you know, they respect my privacy, which those videos don't do. Let's remember those videos were um, recorded secretly, deceptively. They were edited in ways that did that actually made them appear to convey something that was the exact opposite of what the medical directors were saying. Uh, and people are seeing through that, but we have to, I mean, it's, it's sad that we have to keep reminding people um, to trust their own experience and to speak out about their own experience. Well, thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule, saving people's lives through productive health care to um, come talk to us on the show. Our next topic is about um, a hashtag that's trending a bit on Twitter. It's a trans health fail. And the point of this hashtag is to highlight um, like the discrepancy that um, trans folks face when they're trying to seek health care. Um, so for example, like I read a tweet where somebody said that they had to go to the ER and like one of their first thoughts wasn't like, oh, um, will I live or can I afford this? But will they treat me as a trans man? Or another thing was when um, somebody uh, showed up at an office visit and the nurse um, accused the patient of fraud because their ID, the gender on the ID didn't match um, how they were presenting. So and then uh, another tweet I read was from Lynn Sirin, who's a, a trans woman of color developer. And she talks about how she also faces like another level of discrimination in terms of racism. Um, she tweeted about how um, there were white doctors belittling her and her experiences. And then she had to watch like white patients receive hormone treatment months ahead of her. So this is a, a really important issue. And actually in the next issue of Bitch, um, the blood and guts issue, a writer named Carrie Mungu, she wrote, she wrote a piece for us about this. And it talks about how um, the lack of understanding about trans patients creates a barrier in accessing healthcare, uh, both in terms of just needing coverage with health insurance and also because providers aren't trained um, to work with the specific needs of trans patients. And one of the most basic unmet needs is that um, trans patients also need um, 
access to and have a right to and means to physical transition so that they can, you know, bring their body in alignment to their gender. And they also face a barrier in terms of accessing just like primary basic care because they may they may encounter like transphobic providers. So it might even keep them from seeking basic care for basic health issues that we face every day because they don't want to have to deal with transphobic people or transphobia. So I was trying to figure out like why this hashtag came about. And it turns out there's this organization, um, the startup called My Trans Health, and they're doing a Kickstarter campaign to raise money because they want to um, create a website that'll be like a hub for trans patients to find providers who will be like culturally competent to, to treat them. Um, and they're saying that this website will be free. Um, and and it's right now, I think they're starting a pilot thing where when it does start, it'll be focused on like bigger cities. So you, if you're lucky enough to live in a bigger city, you can probably find a provider who will work with you. Um, but it's been a really eye-opening thing to read um, about these experiences. Yeah, I, I, this hashtag is really interesting. I just wanted to read a couple of the ones that really struck me from it. Um, someone named Julie Ray shared this experience. Uh, this is this is their tweet. Nurse, when was your last period? Me, never. I'm transgender. Nurse, you really fooled me. I thought you were a woman. Hashtag trans health fail. Here's another one uh, from Mary the TNF on Twitter. A nurse tried to call me back from my appointment, but then shouted, this can't be you. This chart says male. Hashtag trans health fail. And I think these are really interesting and illuminating because like we've been talking about trans-inclusive healthcare for years. And the way I've mostly heard it talked about is making sure that insurance covers um, uh, transitioning and transgender healthcare needs. But I haven't talked about it so much in terms of just making sure that doctors are culturally competent and nurses are culturally competent in how they treat trans people and don't um, misgender them or actively make them feel uncomfortable for their gender identity. Yeah, and in the piece for the next issue of Bitch, um, it's it's centered around a story of somebody who was in a car accident, and um, and you know once they got to the ER, everybody was misgendering them, and that they also felt like their bodies were being gawked at by the providers because they had not seen patients like them. Um, that just seems so violating, especially when you're in this time where you're so vulnerable. Um, and to think that the people who are supposed to help you and theoretically save you, um, help you to recover, cannot even respect like the most basic part of your identity. Uh, so this is just really interesting to see these experiences. And I think that like we need to talk about this more so that um, trans-inclusive health care doesn't become like a fringe thing that's being offered by health insurance or, or by, by providers, but like that it's just part of normal everyday coverage for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think most people are kind of a little bit nervous about going to the doctor. I know I'm always nervous about going to the doctor and nervous about them judging me, and I like get really sensitive about it. <laughs> like I, like anything they say about my body, I'm like, what are you saying about my blood pressure? My blood pressure is fine, <laughs> you know? And so I think adding gender identity to that is like another layer of feeling like, oh fuck, is this something that that they're gonna make into a big deal or that I'm not gonna be treated fairly because of this. Right, like they'll make it into a big deal and then I won't receive adequate care. Cause there was right, some yeah. of those tweets there, people were saying that like, I actually received like inadequate care to the part, to the point where um, it may have really affected my life in a long-term detrimental way. That's really scary. 
All right. We're at the end of the show. And every week on the end of the show, we talk about one thing we heard, one thing we saw, and one thing we read this week. Do you want to start it off, Amy? You've got... Um, just go for it. Yeah. So speaking of trans issues, um, so I Am Kate premiered, I think, last week. And uh, so far, it's been a really interesting show. And that's that's Caitlyn Jenner's not reality show docu-series? Yeah, quote-unquote docu-series. It's a reality show, guys, uh, with a lot of soft filters. Um, but I'm not here to talk about that show because it's it already has so much publicity. But that, like, to talk about that, uh, things like this have already existed. So late last year, um, Laura Jane Grace from the band Against Me, um, she put out a series through AOL called True Trans. And so Laura Jane Grace um, is in the band called Against Me, and she came out as trans uh, I want to say two or three years ago. And so like, last year, she, um, she stars in this series and it's a 10 episode thing where it's about like seven to nine minutes long per episode. But the episode titles are like growing up or coming out relationships, transparenting and acceptance. So it's just like to chart her journey and and she meets these a lot of different folks along the way so that they can also talk about their stories. Um, and it. This show is interesting because it kind of like it goes in and out of her life as also as a, like a musician and uh, how that affected her coming out story and how that affects like how uh, who her circle of people are. Uh, and there's also like really great music throughout because Against Me is a, an awesome band. Um, my only gripe about the show is that like at the beginning of each episode, she talks about how she's like going to meet all these gender variant people Um of all different walks of life but it's, it's also very white there's just like a very small handful of uh, trans people of color on the show so i'm definitely in support of more trans folks of color and their voices being heard in this like and all these stories that are being told um, and another thing is that just recently this week um transgender law center launched this really neat series called truth um Truth is like a, a smushed together way of saying trans youth. And it's a series where they're looking and talking with um, trans and gender nonconforming youth. And uh, it, they're calling it like a storytelling storytelling movement um, where they get to share their own stories in their own words. And it, it, there's like a series of videos where these young trans people are talking about um, how they, you know, like their experiences and their journeys. And it's, and it's really moving because... And many of these videos, you also see them with their parents. And it's so great to see supportive parents of trans kids talking about like being 100% behind their kids. Um, I want to play a clip here of one of the little episodes. And it's about um, this trans youth. Their name is Danny. And uh, this is their dad talking about them. And then you'll hear Danny after that. Danny has taken their status as someone who doesn't fit every traditional slot in society. Danny has taken that experience and I think it's really fueled their um, desire to seek change in the world, to be you know, an advocate for social justice. And you know, to see that growing in my child over the last few years has really been a great experience. If I were to tell someone what it means for, be to, for me to be non-binary, I would say, <clears throat> I'm embarking on a magical gender adventure. No, really. Um, I would say, um, you know, I'm non-binary, but at the end of the day, I'm a normal kid, trying to live a normal life. I'm trying to make some friends. I'm trying to have a good time. So where can people watch these shows? 
Um, so True Trans is you just go ahead and search True Trans. Um, it is sponsored through AOL, and then Truth, the campaign through the Transgender Law Center. Just search it, and you'll find it. Cool. <laughs> uh, next uh we got some you read something good yes i read something um i read kelly link's new book get in trouble um so i was like totally unfamiliar with her uh but this it's a it's a collection of short stories and i i was a little skeptical at first because it's like kind of fantasy um magical realism stuff and i do actually really love magical realism but i wasn't sure if i could get into it and i got into it it is so good um especially because i have a short attention span so the the short story format really works for me um and then i think the reason why i like her brand of like magical realism slash fantasy is because there's like this tinge of horror but not like like ah bloody monster horror but like like real life fucked up shit horror <laughs> which i really like can get into and feels visceral for me it's like it's like otherworldly but of this world um like for example there's like stories about um like this hotel is holding conventions and there's like a superhero convention there's like a dentist convention you have to like look at these people and figure out whether whether they're like a dentist or a superhero so like little things like that are just about like um everyday like hidden ghosts or like uh, fairy tale like settings um and actually earlier this year we had a review of the book by writer Lindsay murbaum on our website on bitchmedia.org and um she pointed out that kelly link is actually really more known for her young adult fiction and that this is her first book for adults in 10 years and another interesting thing about um Lindsay murbaum's review is that she points out that um this book has a, like a really keen insight into adolescence and I hadn't thought about that because there are also stories about um adult adulthood and adult stuff but but Kelly Link does such an amazing job at writing um from the interior uh life of a adolescence that like there is this one story about um this this young woman and she's like really jealous because her friend has uh, these toys that are called boyfriends that are like these gigantic life real life versions of like boys like a vampire or a werewolf or a ghost and how like she's kind of like frenemies with her friend and how envious she is of her having this toy and it's and like I was reading it and I'm like yes I feel this envy too I want that toy why don't I have and I was like I, I literally went back to middle school reading this like like just my <laughs> gut feelings went back there like I didn't have these toys or access to these toys but this it's a great book and it it was it's awesome it's kelly link get in trouble so read some kelly link and you'll feel like you're a teenager again in a bad way <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll close the show with um a song that both amy and i love this is from seattle band la loose who has a new album coming out this month called weirdo shrine i love that name weirdo shrine for their album uh la loose is a seattle band they play you know, I'm so bad at describing music, but I think of them as like kind of garagey surf rock. Yes, dreamy, dreamy surf dreamy, rock. Dreamy, dreamy surf rock. This was the inspiration for the surf rock mixtape that I put together that I was talking about at the beginning of the show. I listened to this album and I love it. So we're going to play you out with some surf rock from La Luz. The name of the song is You Disappear off the album Weirdo Shrine. You'll love it. I promise. Goodbye.
Smack Talk is a podcast that's hosted by Amy Lamb and Sarah Merck and is a production of Bitch Media. Our producer is Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener-supported feminist nonprofit. If you like Backtalk and want to support our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Thank you so much for listening to the show. <laughs>